You're listening to Music Tectonics. Hi there, and welcome to Music Tectonics, the podcast that goes beneath the surface to discover everything that's shaking at the intersection of music and tech. I'm your host for today, Tristra Neuer-Jaeger, Director of Strategy at Rock, Paper, Scissors, the music tech PR firm. Today we're going to explore a really interesting field of musicology and sonic research, namely eco-musicology and acoustic ecology. These fields of study can inform and guide the way we think about music tech. For example, we can explore questions like how does sound define spaces and their distinct characteristics? How can we learn to appreciate, understand, and respect the sound of the features, creatures, and places around us? And as we develop tech to generate more and more artificial or synthetic soundscapes, what do we really need to know and what do we need to keep in mind? To give us a deeper grounding in some of the basics we might need to answer these questions, we're joined today by Anne-Marie Huey-Shaver, a flutist, doctoral candidate in ecomusicology, and member of the Acoustic Ecology Lab at Arizona State University. I'll tell you a little bit more about Anne-Marie's background and her research direction, but I'm also going to let her tell you more about that in just a second. But Anne-Marie is drawing on research in environmental humanities, acoustic ecology, and sound studies. She explores sound, listening, and public creative placekeeping. She investigates the cultural role of environmental sound, new ways to engage with sonic environments, and the benefits of listening to one's surroundings. So thanks so much for joining us today, Anne-Marie. I'm really excited. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. So I'm going to start out with pretty much the most boring basic question, which is, what exactly is ecomusicology? What questions, as a, as a field of study, does it attempt to ask and answer? This is a great question, and I will try my best not to get as into the weeds <laughs> of explaining it. Um, The short definition is that ecomusicology is the study of music, culture, and nature. Now, of course, each of those terms has a huge history with it. There's so much baggage and so many discussions around each term. You know, for music example, what does that mean to this person versus another person? Are we including sound in our definition of music? Are we doing noise? Um, So just... As you can imagine, very wide, very diverse um, options when it comes to ecomusicology. It's a very complex field um, to bring together that music, nature, culture combination. And there are a lot of labels, not labels, facets, we'll say, um, that tackle those questions of music and sound as it relates to the environment. For example, there's zoo musicology, also called biomusic, and this really considers like human, sorry, non-human animal sounds like bird songs, whale songs, and places them in relation to human musicality. Also places them outside of human musicality and within their own context of the animal musicking. Interspecies music making is another subset of zoo musicology. Um, I do think it's important to recognize Stephen Feld's influence on this field. He is an ethnomusicologist and does research on sound and place. The term that he has coined is acoustomology, and that's really just a fancy way of combining acoustics and epistemology. The main point with Feld is he's positing that sound is a way of knowing, 
And many ecomusicologists, acoustic ecologists are reliant and often refer to his term. So if, if you want something to anchor you, uh, Stephen Feld's acoustomology is a good place to start. Um, but there's also research on how environments may impact a composer and the music they're composing. Um, there are also sustainability concerns within the field. For example, what wood or materials are we making instruments out of and can we do that long-term? What about music distribution? What is the impact globally of cassettes, of CDs, of streaming services? So you can see that there's this activism aspect in place here as well. It's very common to come to issues of pollution, climate change, animal rights, that type of thing in connection with music. Uh, John Luther Adams is a composer very much so worth listening to. He has a background in environmentalism and his music is also tackling some of those issues. Um, and then in my own research, like you said, ecomusicology for me is attached to acoustic ecology, soundscapes, sound walking. Um, and just to give a, a easy definition of soundscapes, it's just the study of sounds in a particular place considered in a context or as an ecosystem. And I do think it's important to note that soundscapes can be natural, quote unquote natural or urban. And those labels do perpetuate a binary that I'm not super excited about, but it's, it's a way to conceptualize of soundscapes, including everything not just what we think of as the natural world. Um, and acoustic ecology is very much so associated with soundscape and soundscape studies. And that's associated with Canadian composer R. Murray Schaefer. He wrote a book called The Tuning of the World that has been very influential. Um, and he also had a world soundscape project that he was involved in that really coined a lot of the key terms that are still used in ecomusicology and acoustic ecology. He was very concerned with noise pollution and he was and remains a somewhat problematic figure in his erasure of certain voices and points of views and sounds, um, but he is definitely recognized as a main figure. But to recap, the, the short definition of ecomusicology is the study of music, culture, and nature. That's really fascinating. Um, I kind of want to go back to a term that you, you dropped as you were describing what sort of what the field can encompass. And namely, mm -hmm. I loved the term, was it sound walking? Yes, yes. Tell, tell us a little bit more about, so in some ways, sound walking sounds like a great way to get to know sound. And we'll talk about how do we know via sound in a second. <laughs> but how, how does sound walking work and what's its role in um, just understanding the, the ecology, uh, the audio ecology of a location? Yeah. So sound walking is taking a walk with the intention of listening and Movement is a, in my opinion, a, a can be a key part of the listening process. Of course, there is a time and space for stationary listening, but the sound walking element, I think, helps you ground a little bit into the space um, and experience the sounds in a different way. And that's really what all of this is about, is how can we open and encourage more ways of listening. 
Um, but sound walking, I think, is a really wonderful practice in that you you do get to experience spaces. You pass through them in a way that is intentional, that is connected. Um, and I think personally, sound walking can lead to a connection within yourself. Like it's a time to be, it can be meditative and reflective. Um, if you want to take some time to think, how am I receiving this sound? Where in my body am I receiving this sound? It just gets you in touch with your own experiences. But also if you're walking continuously in a certain place, like my um, co-founder of the sound walking program at Arizona State University, he and I were doing sound walks weekly on campus. So we got to experience like, oh yeah, there's that loud tree that's just full of 12,000 birds. <laughs> um, and, you know, we got to know the bird tree mm. because we walked past it every week. Um, and that's also part of this is if you have a regular listening practice, you can experience the changes of seasons, of growth, of whatever it may be. Um, but sound walking is a great way to move through spaces in a way that facilitates that listening and that connection. That's really, that's really interesting and compelling. And uh, I love the idea of a bird tree, kind of a bird fanatic over here. Um, (laughs) We walked around the tree, not under the tree. (laughs) (laughs) It's, it's great too, when you go to a new city or a new part of the country, a new part of the world, that's one of the first things I think you can notice if you go outside, you know, maybe early in the morning before the traffic noise is there is you'll hear these new birds. You're like, who is, what is that? Like, so it's, that's always a, a, for me, a very exciting moment, but getting back to how um, in some ways the, the sound walking process or any process of deep listening is tuning into how we know via sound, what we can learn, not just in sheer, in terms of sheer information, but sort of how the, the audio, the auditory experience contributes to our, um, understanding of who we are, who the, we're, what the world is. Um, I'm, I'm wondering how ecomusicology or acoustic ecology addresses that point. I mean, I don't, we don't need to get too deep into epistemology or like, you know, philosophical sure. <laughs> concerns that have absorbed humans since probably the dawn of time. But um, how, how are these questions being sort of framed nowadays um, in your field? Yeah, there are different ways. So for example, to use the acoustic ecology lab as a reference, they have done work in VR and um, their project is called Eco Rift. And it's an initiative that uses nature settings and sounds typically for healing purposes, or that's one application. Uh, so it, it takes still images, 360 images and sound recordings from national parks and preserves from all around the world and it uses um, like Oculus head tracking to mimic re- reality positionality, essentially. So if you're in this space in the headset and you hear some, you hear a bird behind you and kind of to the right, and then you turn your head to that space, now the bird is going to be sounding in front of you. Um, and some of the, the people who have used this have said they've seen something move but it's a still image. So, so to me, that's indicating that sound is really an important part of building this realistic environment. 
so that has applications for AR, VR, like you were saying. Wow. And also, yeah, yeah, it's fascinating. Um, and one related note, there was a project done by a lab member, Naomi Chen. Her initial studies with the VR, specifically with the aging population, showed that there was a correlation with positive well-being, which is also well-documented. You know, people who have a window in a hospital can heal faster in some cases than without the window. So related to existing research in that way. That's fascinating. I also love how uh, the the uh, visual and audio processing are always so tied together, right? So if you hear a sound <laughs> and you can't see the source, you can, you know, you, the positionality gets confused, etc. It's super interesting. All right, we're going to take a very quick break in our conversation. Um, and we'll be right back. South by Southwest is back in person and face to face in Austin, Texas. Will you be there? The Music Tectonics team is convening the official Music Tech meetup at South by. It takes place March 16th, 2022 at 11:30 a.m. local Austin time. It's at the Austin Convention Center. Dimitri will be your host, crazy pants and all. Build your music tech network and connect outside your usual groove. Dimitri is bringing his seismic shift trading cards to spark ideas on music industry upheavals now and in the future. If you're listening to this podcast and you have a South by badge, this meetup is for you. Find details on the South by Southwest schedule. Look for Seismic Shifts Music Tech Networking Meetup. Now, back to the show. Okay, we're back. And uh, now is the time when I get to grill Anne-Marie about her own background, because I'm always excited how people get interested in um, in such specific and yet wide-reaching fields, right? Like, So you're studying something that has a very specific focus from on one hand and yet is a universal part of human experience. And we could argue even like animal experience, right? Because I think, I think I read somewhere that almost all animals have auditory, you know, parts of their brain, uh, but mm -hmm. not all of them can see, right? Like blind cavefish, they can hear, but they can't see. Anyway, um, let's get back to you. <laughs> How did you get involved in this particular field? What drew you to it? Mm -hmm. Well, blind cavefish. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> I was, yeah, had to find out about those cavefish. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I actually discovered ecomusicology when I was searching for a topic for my final master's recital. Um, I ended up doing a lecture recital since I was studying both musicology and flute performance for my degree. And really it was, I needed something to center around. And I had the thought, what if we do nature pieces? And really found ecomusicology, a bibliography online, and ended up talking in that recital about approaching flute extended techniques through the imitation of certain quote unquote nature sounds. Um, like George Crumb has a piece called Voice of the Whale. And at the beginning, the flute is singing and playing simultaneously. And it's meant to be a stylized whale call or whale song. Um, so that was my start is just thinking, wow, this is really cool. Um, and like we've talked about, there's so many applications of this. It can be, in this case, it was pedagogical, but also helping audiences approach more avant-garde or experimental music. And I think that's really interesting to kind of broaden experiences. Um, I did read the book called Music and the Skillful Listener, American Women Compose the Natural World. <clears throat> this is a book by Denise Von Glan, and it was my introduction to ecomusicology by a musicologist. 
And then I just started looking at ecomusicologist, um, and that led me to Dr. Sabina Feist, who is a professor at Arizona State University. She is my advisor, and she and Garth Payne, Dr. Garth Payne, co-founded and run the Acoustic Ecology Lab at ASU. So the rest is is history. That's really wonderful. Um, you also have a background, well, you have a background, as you just mentioned, as, a, as an artist, as a performer. And I'm curious how that has informed what you do as a scholar. How do those two parts of your life work together? I love that question. Like, yes, we can be well-rounded people. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> yeah, so in addition to that contemporary flute interest that I have, um, I really became interested in the music of, and the philosophy of American composer Pauline Oliveros. I was just struck by her music, especially her deep listening album, which was recorded, it's a collaborative album, recorded in a cistern with like a 45 second reverb. Uh, so it's very droney, very meditative. Um, so I was interested in her, found her sonic meditations, which are text scores, and discovered her philosophy of deep listening. Um, and deep listening is really this practice based in sound, movement and dreaming and it was pioneered by Pauline Oliveros along with her partner Ioni and dancer Heloise Gold. Um, something about this practice really intrigued me and I did some intensive trainings in it. I'm now certified in deep listening um, and really I give all this background because my work as a musician, artist, creative, whatever label you want to use is in deep listening. And deep listening is my research and my research methodology. So aspects of this deep listening practice inform how I'm researching. So an increased listening, this idea of lift off judgment, of just coming to something very open, the idea of expanding possibilities of a meditative awareness of full body experience. These are all principles of the deep listening practice that really go along with how I'm approaching research, how I'm doing research, how I'm even writing this about this research. Um, and I do think the methodology grounded in having, like the researcher is a person, they have ideas and thoughts and an embodied experience. Um, that's something, there's a lot of research about it, but I'm joining others in that specifically from the deep listening perspective. That's really helpful context. So let's talk a bit about your your area of research. What are you exploring in what sounds like actually a pretty wide and diverse field of study? Yeah, th this is why you write the dissertation perspectives, right? Is to answer <laughs> questions <laughs> like this. Uh, but yeah, so my, my dissertation research is focusing on listening practices, um, specifically deep listening, and using deep listening and elements of ecofeminist scholarship to consider 20th and 21st century sound art and experimental music, and specifically art that is including the more than human world. So plants, animals, even like spirits or ghosts, um, if we wanna talk about ancestry in that way too. Um, and with the ecofeminists, side of things, there is this idea of care ethics. And that's something I can bring to the research. So embracing non-normative ways of 
listening and of scholarship. So like I said, acknowledging my positionality as a researcher, that I have cultural and emotional um, backgrounds that are contributing to how I'm hearing or experiencing or analyzing something. And then sitting with myself and like, how is my body also experiencing this piece or this sound, this music? Um, and I'm really trying to use my desire for an increased awareness in the research process and in talking about these sounds. Very cool. So we're going to take another quick break here and we'll be right back. What's the next seismic event on the Music Tectonics calendar? Join us on the first Wednesday of every month for demos of music tech tools for labels and artist managers. With new demos at each event, you'll learn about cutting-edge solutions for music marketing, monetization, rights management, and more. On Wednesday, March 2nd, we're inviting labels and managers to gather for demos from Hi-Fi Labs, a creative team building crazy, cool, never-been-done tech tools and digital experiences for artists of all sizes. And Immersion Networks, whose world-first platform allows the capture, creation, and delivery of next-generation audio experiences. That all goes down March 2nd at 1 p.m. Eastern Time. We'll kick off with intros from the audience, so be ready to get on camera and make connections. This is not a lean-back webinar. Register for free and learn more about the Seismic Activities series at musictectonics.com. Now, back to Tristra. Okay, we're back. And now we get to really have some fun and talk about the the nitty gritty <laughs> of now that we've defined ecomusicology, we've heard a little bit about your background, Anne-Marie. I'm really excited to talk to you a bit about some of these bigger questions that I'm sure come up um, regularly in your work or, you know, among your colleagues. So let's talk a bit about listening. Um, as listeners, what can we learn from framing music as part of a bigger soundscape or ecology? You know, often we tend to segment music into categories or associate it with, say, certain activities that are very much like human activities, such as, you know, I'm commuting, I'm cooking, I'm you know, mm. working out. Um, what does it mean, though, if we take music as part of this bigger uh, auditory or sonic world? Right. I think that we can understand music as one way to experience sound. That that would be the, the short way to think of it. And part of that is we can apply the listening techniques we use for music in those various contexts, apply those same listening techniques to environments. And then however we're listening to environments, vice versa, we could apply that to um, listening to music performances. Like you were saying about a whole ecosystem, like listening to a space as a whole and for the relationships that the sounds have within that space can really create or reveal those connections with you in the space, between you and others, between the space itself. Um, and it, it broadens those experiences that we can then call upon when we're listening to other spaces or musical performances. Um, so I think listening exercises can highlight how we can frame music as, as part of something bigger. So for example, 
if you wanted to do a listening exercise, you could zoom in on one small detail. Maybe in a musical setting, that's the oboe. Maybe in a different setting, that's your AC unit rumbling. So you, you focus on that one sound. And then you can zoom out and listen to the interactions of sounds. So if that's in an orchestral or a chamber music setting, um, you know, how are the instruments and the players interacting? If that's in maybe a work setting, how is the AC unit combining with someone's keyboard clicking or a chair creaking or a distant car whooshing? <laughs> um, so there are applications for performers to use their practice or ensemble work, like the listening practices there, but also audiences can use these types of listening practices when experiencing music or a space. Um, and I think it can also, like as for another example, maybe we then choose to listen to a rainstorm as a composition. Not that we're imposing a structure on it, but instead incorporating those sounds and those ideas from music to the rainstorm and then from the rainstorm to music. That's really cool. Sorry, I was just now I'm just like listening to like the buzz of the lights and like what what's making that sound <laughs> as well as listening to your words. Um, so I, I'm curious, you know, we we talk a lot about music and tech here and and I well, I don't want to spring this on you out of the blue. I'm curious how you or how others in your field what you know how how do you see this this relationship between um music and sound and technology i mean on one hand you mentioned this sort of these vr settings that thanks to more immersive sounds could really bring people into a location that was very dif different from the one they were in um with the mm -hmm. headset on uh, but at the same time i know you know a lot of acoustic ecologists are concerned about human sounds the sound of technology and how that can influence um, human behavior, uh, you know, human health, like in a hospital setting, etc. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering, um, what are some of the scholarly views on technology when it comes to listening to sound environments and, and that kind of kind of thing? I was wondering if you could share a few thoughts. They don't have to be fully baked. No one's gonna, this will not <laughs> be on your oral exam or something. So. <laughs> oh, thank goodness. Um, no, I think... It is interesting and it can be a split of how how people feel about the role of, of tech and technology, but there's no denying that things like doing field recordings or the ability to share your music or recording on a platform like through the internet, those things are really bringing otherwise potentially unheard sounds and experiences to a wider audience. Um, so I, I think we, I don't know where we'd be <laughs> without <clears throat> the importance mm -hmm. of, of the technology. Um, I, I think it's interesting to see that the proliferation of things like sound sharing apps, where you can record four minutes and 33 seconds in your space and then upload it to the site and, hey, let's listen to that same amount of time in Italy or wherever. Um, Things like that, there are a ton of them. So people are relying, especially artists, are relying on recording technology specifically to share what they're doing and, and hearing. Um, and I do think, too, it's interesting that some of these artists are also researchers. So I'm, I'm thinking of um, Jana Vinderen. She is 
currently based in Norway, I believe. And she's, her background is in biology, but she makes these field recordings. Um, like there's one spring bloom in the marginal ice zone where it's these tiny, like who listens to the marginal ice zone? Like no one's accessing that area of the world. But because she wow. is, um, and she's a researcher, she's able to bring these really vulnerable ecosystems mm. like that ice zone or the coral reefs. Um, she's able to bring them into a composition and then share them so someone can connect with that space, even though it's inaccessible or maybe you don't have the means to travel there. Um, yeah, just it's a way to share and connect and potentially bring compassion or a desire that activism aspect again to a space that's really that's really exciting and uh you know it's a it's such an exciting thought to be able to imagine uh, a time when it would be very easy to record you know like a, a completely immersive audio recording of you know, the ice cracking on a northern river, you know, or, mm-hmm. <laughs> or the sound of like a really great sound of, of uh, night in a in a forest at the, you know, equatorial forest where um, I hear it's it's pretty raucous. Um, right. <laughs> <laughs> so those are that's like really amazing. It's so cool that people are sharing those experiences, too. That's that's exciting. So, you know, that that's a very positive aspect of what technology has unlocked for us as listeners and as uh, I don't know, composers using the recording mode almost as an instrument or a means of composition. Where do you see or where do some of your colleagues or, or, or you know, fellow researchers see problematic moments with music, uh, music or sound and technology? Like, are there are there things happening that um, eco-musicologists are concerned about? I mean, beyond the sheer, like, you can't find a place without human sounds. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, that may or may not be a problem, depending on how you slice it. But are there ways that we listen now that uh, you would love to transform or shift? Or um, are there things that, like, if you could wave a magic wand, you wish people could could learn to do a little differently in their relationship with technology and the herd environment? Um, again, this is this can be purely from you and and not necessarily a researcher's perspective. But I'm just curious, what are the what are some of the downsides or the challenges we face in this technologically mediated sound world? Yes, I think the point you made about not finding a space without human sound is very present in the scholarship and. Um, artists as well have have commented on this. Um, It's also worth noting like sound itself is not always great. There's research about sound, the the decibel levels um, either being so loud. Yeah. So the loudness factor or just having continuous music, um, it can be used as torture. There's research about, about that. So in that way, I mean, the speakers are are not being used and the music itself is not being used in a productive way. Um, but as far as changing something in the future, I think louder plant sounds, <laughs> this is me personally, <laughs> I love it. louder plant sounds would be really amazing. Um, and there, there are, 
tools currently that allow this to happen, microphones and playback that allow people to hear plant sounds. Um, usually it's in an installation setting, but it, it does also, it has research applications as well. Um, but I don't know, I think an increased sensitivity to what we think of as these really delicate sounds or sounds we may not even have considered, mm. like a plant sound, mm -hmm. uh, because we can't process it as a human, our human hearing, having the means to make that heard and perceptible, I think that would be wonderful. Like, I love let's that. let's hear what all the plants have to say. <laughs> <laughs> I have heard of several different uh, ex sort of experiments where you can use different sort of like I think they're like little electrical uh, diodes where you can like sort of get the the, the impulses that plants have yes. um, that all living creatures have that flow through them and turn that into sound and use use basically uh, a plant as a way to generate music. Um, yes. Yeah, and. But that's not the plant, the sound of the plant itself. Well, it is a sound. It's an aspect of the, the plant sound, but you're not really hearing, you know, I, I don't know, what would the, how, what does the plant hear as it grows? <laughs> Questions too, we've never yeah, like, asked on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And welcome to my world. <laughs> it's pretty um, cool. <laughs> but yeah, it's great. And I, those, like, there are many artists who are miking or, interacting with plants in a way that is bringing them to light, but it's very niche. I recognize that. <laughs> um, it's not, yeah, as, uh, but I don't know, maybe Gaga needs to do it and then we'll, we'll all know about it. <laughs> I bet she's going to make, she's going to make, make a real sick track with some, <laughs> with some bean sprouts. <laughs> the, the, um, I, but I think that one of the, like, just to take a step back, like the bigger message though, is that the sounds of our living companions, not to get too woo about it on this planet, um, <laughs> and, and the, you know, inanimate materials around us all like all of those sounds whether we can whether we hear them or we perceive them or not like we you know that has something to to give us and to teach us and it makes up our world even if we're not aware of it like the um and perhaps you know just to get back to some of the you know sound environments that people may be generating over the next 10 years without understanding deeply what those elements are something's always going to feel off right it's like you look at a human mm. face that's too the skin is not is too regular and you can tell it's generated by a, you know by ai for example so that uncanny valley of um in a, of soundless objects <laughs> mm. <laughs> that we have to mm -hmm. watch out for um Though I think it's, I also love the point you made about continuous, sort of a continuous stimuli in terms of music or really loud sounds and the importance that we pay attention to that uh, as we think about technology is important. You know, that's, that's a, that's another really valid point. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you get some good, good, good counterbalance of silence there. That was perfect. <laughs> well, looking ahead, where, um, you know, uh, we all, I think a lot of us who get deep into academic research, there's a, it's, a, it's an active imagination in a lot of ways, um, whether even if you're looking at the, the past or um, doing something like, you know, doing sociological surveys, there's a lot of imagination involved. And I'm wondering when you get, you know, maybe after a deep listening session or really good walk, um, when you get into that space where you're like, 
wouldn't it be cool someday if, what kind of things do you hear? What kind of things do you imagine? Besides the the bean sprouts that <laughs> will be samples. Um, I don't know. I, I had one, <laughs> to go back to our kind of woo-woo. Yeah. Um, I had one transcendent, I will call it, moment where I was able, I felt like I was truly able to hear everything at once. One time, it was maybe a second long. <laughs> and I think that would be like, that's what I hear is just huh. the understanding of accepting sound. And it just making sense, like it doesn't have to make sense. But it, it just does it exists. And in that existence, it is making sense. I, I know how I sound right now. But I know, no, I, 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 I think anyone who's a deep music who connects deeply to music uh, as a as a human has had has you know got gained that transcendence in some way shape or form right and I think that's the powerful part of it and to incorporate other beings mm. and objects into that experience sounds and seems like a, a I don't even have the right word it just seems like a beautiful way to move through life and space um so really just switching on and if everybody were able to tap into that and encourage their own listening how you know it would sound so different like we would potentially could make so much change in relationships and in cultivating space and place for those who are usually silenced or hard to hear. Hmm. Um, that's a yeah. wonderful I'm, thought. I'm getting too deep into my thoughts. No, I love it. it. I love it. I think that's uh, an important place. Uh, that's an important place to go. And it's easy to forget that that is, that's mu- one of music's original <laughs> goals was to take us there. So thanks for mm. going there with me, Anne-Marie. This was a really wonderful conversation. And um, listeners, I hope you've listened deeply, both to the words and whatever background sound you might hear. Um, thanks so much for joining us for Music Tectonics today. Thank you, Trisha. Thanks for listening to Music Tectonics. If you like what you hear, please subscribe on your favorite podcast app. We have new episodes for you every week. Did you know you can dig deeper into all our episodes with the show notes at musictectonics.com. While you're there, look for the latest about our annual conference, sign up for our newsletter to get updates, or get the Music Tectonics app for music tech news. Everything we do explores seismic shifts that shake up music and technology the way the Earth's tectonic plates cause quakes and make mountains. Connect with Music Tectonics on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and find me, Dimitri Vitsa, if you can spell it, on LinkedIn. Bye-bye! You're listening to Music Tectonics.